The Near Futurist, a podcast with Guy Clapperton. Hello, and thanks for downloading The Near Futurist, a show presented by me, Guy Clapperton. Sorry it's a week late, I had a bit of a sniffle on a train station last week, so I self-isolated until I'd finished binging all the TV I'd missed. Today, we'll be talking to an expert on threat intelligence. How secure do we actually think we are? But first, the usual look at me bit about who you're listening to. I'm Guy Clapperton, a speaker, technology journalist and media trainer with 30 years experience. I see a lot of people calling themselves futurists at conferences. They talk about the next 30 years. I'd rather talk about the actionable stuff that's imminent, hence the Near Futurist tag. Do have a look at my website at nearfuturist.co.uk where you'll find more episodes and information on what we're about. If you'd like to book me as a speaker or MC for your technology event, do have a look at the showreel on the site and drop me a line, guy at nearfuturist.co.uk, that's nearfuturist as one word, or get in touch with my agent, whose details are of course also on the site. And if you like what you're hearing on this podcast, please do consider leaving a review on the iTunes store or wherever you download from. And if you're new to the show, welcome. Actually, if you're not new to the show, you're still welcome. Well, that's loads about me, so let's get to my guest for, for the show. He's currently Insight's Chief Security Officer, having previously worked as an Executive Security Advisor at IBM, as well as being the head of RSA Security's Cyber Threats Research Labs. He holds an MA in Counterterrorism and Cyberterrorism and contributed to the International Institute for Counterterrorism on Cybersecurity, Fraud and Dark Web Topics. His name is Itai Maur. Itai, welcome. Thank you for having me. You're more than welcome. Now, okay, I've done my usual trick of cutting and pasting the bio your associates kindly sent me, so thank you very much for that. I know they're listening in. Do tell me a little bit about Insight and uh, what you personally do there. Okay, so Insight is a threat intelligence company. We look into the deep, dark web as well as the surface web, and we look for different threats uh, that may affect our customers, whether it's their uh, systems, uh, their processes, or people. And we try to, to, you know, we set alerts and notify customers uh, of, uh, you know, imminent threats, topics that are in discussion um, by cyber criminals and different gangs. I'm the uh, chief security officer at Insights. Um, as part of my uh, job there, I do strategic research. research. Uh, I provide uh, security services and advisories. And um, I'm also uh, kind of the face of the company when it comes to talking at conferences and, and uh, doing all kinds of external facing activities. Okay, now if you could take me back a step, because this uh, show go, this show goes to consumers as well as to uh, businesses. I still hear from people, particularly on the consumer side, they feel they're covered because they have antivirus in terms of security. I suspect you're going to disagree with them, but I wonder if you could tell me why and what people need to be aware of. Yes, I, I, you're right. I disagree. Antivirus is not enough. It might have been enough in 2003, uh, but we're way past that. And the reason for that is that cyber criminals, just like us researchers, they do their threat intel collection. And they understand what they need to do in order to have successful fraudulent uh, campaigns or, or cyber crime attacks. And so we're, we already are familiar with different types of malware and, and attacks uh, that know how to neutralize the, the antivirus, make it seem like it's still working. So you'll still see the little square on the bottom right of your screen, but the antivirus is dead while the malware is actually collecting information from the device. I actually have all kinds of uh, examples and videos that, that show how the malware do it, does it. 
what we need to keep in mind as consumers is something that the security market constantly talks about, and that is that security has to come in layers. You can't say, oh, I have an antivirus, I'm covered. Um, you actually have to have multiple layers. And some of them are a little bit more inconvenient, but they will keep you safer uh, than other types of attacks. One more thing that I want to mention here is, you know, in security and technology, we constantly talk about uh, PPT, people, processes, and technology, and how you need to secure them. But we have a tendency to focus on the technology. It's always, what are the best zero days? On the other side, what are the best technologies for securing people? But the attackers don't look at it like that. The attacker would look at people and processes as being the main targets, not the technology. You know, why is I as an attacker would go up against a million dollar firewall system versus me going up against Jack from accounting, much easier target for me. That's an interesting point. I'd like to pursue that a little. What is Jack from accounting? Uh, with apologies to anybody who's called Jack and who works in accounting. What is Jack from accounting going to do? Why is he or she such a soft target? First of all, because a lot of people don't realize uh, that they are the target. And, and you know, uh, they think, oh, the IT, the security team, they need to keep us safe and they need to be the most secure. No, uh, you go after the, the softer targets in the company. Now, for, for companies today, they have to keep in mind that people who, who work for the companies, uh, uh, they have their own private life. Sometimes they bring in devices into work. They go online and, and they have a social media profile and they sometimes share information. So those, those areas are, are the areas where uh, an attacker would look for, connecting through social media, learning about uh, uh, social networks, learning about the target, potentially even trying to infect them through these kind of software area, software areas that you may think that the attack may not come from. Do people still install uh, software on their systems that they're not supposed to? I remember I was talking to a major corporate company once. I don't think they exist anymore, but I'm still not going to name them just in case. And uh, their CTO was saying that uh, they were very strict about people installing things that they hadn't actually uh, approved and that didn't come through uh, their company's uh, authorization process. And he paused and then he said, except iTunes, we all use that to listen to music which I thought was pretty hilarious. Not that I'm saying Apple isn't trustworthy, but I'm just wondering whether this uh, idea of, you know, people installing, maybe they decide they need to share something and it's easier through WeTransfer, or it's easier through Dropbox, so they install the Dropbox app or something like that happens. Is, is that still prevalent? So two things to say about that, because that's a very touchy subject. Number one is what you've just mentioned. So people, some companies, you know, they, they have the means and they have the capability to stop you from installing software that they don't want on your computer. They, you know, they remove the local administrator, they remove different installation rights. However, some companies don't do that. Now, in addition to that, we always have to keep in mind, you know, it's very easy for me as a security person to say, you know, don't install anything that I don't allow you. Don't do this. Don't do that. But the reality is you cannot do that. You also have to give people alternatives. And a very well-known example that I, I like to give during my session is the use of USBs. You know, once all these uh, 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 malicious USBs came out and it has been proven how they can uh, attack different systems and different networks, some companies said, you know what, no more USBs. You, you're not allowed to plug in a USB. But that's not the answer. Because you know what happened a day, what happens a day after a company implements such a procedure? All your employees become hackers and they find ways around it. And do you feel better about them using a USB or about seeing all of a sudden a surge in the number of PowerPoints and Excel files going to Dropbox and Gmail? Uh, again, not saying that they're not secure, just, you know, they're mm -hmm. going into the cloud and all of a sudden, you know, how do you control that? So you can't put a, a process in place 
that is good, good in intention, but not provide uh, the employees with an alternative and a way to do it. You can't just say can't, you have to also, also say how. Now, another point uh, to, to this issue is, you know, even uh, talking about some of the things that are happening right now in the world with, with, with the coronavirus scare, right? People are talking about the different attacks that are happening right now with phishing attacks, uh, that the masquerade is corona and so on. But what really interests me now is the fact that a lot of the workforce is going to work from home, which makes mm. them more susceptible. Again, we're focusing on the technology and not on the people. Now, what happened when it happens when a person works at home and decides to do some work from his personal computer because, I don't know, his laptop is not charged or he has, you know, he, he didn't want to use the computer for whatever reason it is. And he starts working on a different system or he doesn't use a VPN to connect to company resources. Those are the, the silos that I'm speaking of that attackers will likely try to take advantage of. A VPN, that's virtual private network. Uh, just in case somebody listening isn't a security uh, specialist, perhaps you could explain what that is. Right. So VPN is pretty much it's a, it's a protocol, a system software that allows you to tunnel your information and encrypt it. So, for example, if you go to a cafe, a public cafe, and you're connecting to the Wi-Fi, you don't know who is listening to that Wi-Fi. You don't know uh, if at any point between your connection and uh, whichever server you're trying to reach, uh, something somebody's eavesdropping. A VPN will actually allow you to encrypt that information and, and protect it. But uh, I, at the same time, I also want to say, let's make sure we understand the difference between security and privacy. Just because you're using a VPN does not secure your computer. It secures the data when it's transferred. However, if you use a VPN and you go into a website that imitates the uh, World Health Organization and uh, it downloads malware to your computer, the malware will still download. That will not be protected by v v the VPN. Hopefully, your antivirus can catch that. Hopefully, you don't go to that website, but afterwards, I hope those layers will protect you. Part of protecting yourself through layers is because uh, the threats are evolving. I know it is partly, uh, well, one of your major parts of your job to keep an eye on what's changing out there. Um, what's been happening lately? What are the new threats that are evolving and what are you anticipating in the near future? So actually, a lot of the threats that we are seeing right now are not all that new in terms of how, what they are. It still revolves around phishing and different types of malware attacks. However, they have become much more sophisticated, both in the way that they're presented to the victim uh, as well as their capabilities to uh, evade detection. Now, I actually went uh, on a, an interview 10 years ago, 11 years ago, oh, that was a long time, in 2009, and I predicted, you know, everybody likes the three-year, five-year prediction, and I did a five-year prediction saying that phishing is going to disappear because people are aware of these types of attacks, and malware is much stronger, so you won't see phishing anymore. And uh, sorry to say this, Itai, that's not worn well. That has not aged. That's uh... <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. So I don't do those predictions, those types of predictions anymore. Phishing is, is not only is it here, it's constantly growing, and it's constantly utilizing world events like Corona now, but, you know, it was the, the attacks in, in Iran a couple of months ago, and it was different events uh, before that. Um, so the type of attacks that we're seeing are not going to change, but we do have to pay attention to a couple of things that are changing. First of all, um, we're, we're seeing a lot more of the ransomware types of attacks, um, which also shows you you don't have to have amazing technology to, to make a lot of money as an attacker. You know, a ransomware is relatively a very simple piece of software compared to sophisticated, uh, very sophisticated malware that, you know, can go into critical infrastructure and move between networks. 
but it's enough. It's enough for the criminals to make money. And, and you know, every every other week we hear about a local town or 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 some uh, a facility that is shut down due to uh, ransomware. So we'll see more of those. What is a little bit more concerning to me, since you were talking before about near future, is how we're getting more devices in our houses and in our lives. And now. Currently, I think most users are not that concerned about cybersecurity as they should have, but once these types of attacks start affecting your everyday living and you'll have ransomware on whatever it is, your refrigerator or your car or, or something that would inconvenience you daily, I think, I think that's where we'll start seeing the shift in how uh, consumers and, and people at home approach uh, cybersecurity. I'd like to talk a bit more about uh, ransomware and uh, phishing because that really gets back to what you're saying about how it's the people who are under attack. Now, my understanding is that uh, these things work so that uh, I get a link that appears to be something that it's not. I'm, I click on it, and I've therefore made, and I then get a message saying, we've now trapped all of your data, we've encrypted it, or we, we can get your bank details or whatever, unless you uh, put an amount, usually an affordable amount, in a bank account for us. Uh, because if they ask for £20,000 or something, they'll get uh, me They'll get me onto the police. If they ask for 200 I might actually think it's worth it to keep them off my back, and so forth. Um, do people really still click through those uh, those links? It's a bit like, I don't know, using your pet's name for a password, which I, I was telling my pet golden retriever this morning, Ruby, uh, that that's a very bad idea. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, unfortunately, people still click on them. Again, they don't. In the first iterations of these ransomware attacks, you could probably spot them very easily. Today, they try to masquerade themselves as uh, something a little bit more believable. So people sometimes still click on them. We've seen cases where uh, the attacks also incorporated elements of uh, BEC, business email compromise, so an email that looks like it's coming from somebody you know. And then you click on it and, and it deploys the attack on your computer. So unfortunately, we still still see these things. And I have to say something about paying back uh, because it's really important to understand what you're up against. Some of these attacks happen through uh, what we call infection campaigns. So imagine, you know, uh, uh, you know those uh, F1 race cars where you have a lot of, or Daytona uh, race cars where you have a lot of stickers on them. What happens with criminals is they infect computers and then they go into the criminal underground and say, hey, I have 5,000 infected computers in the UK, for example. I'll download whatever malware you want on them. And they sell it per, per infection. So what ends up happening is some people have a computer that is infected with what we call a downloader. And now you have multiple types of ransomware or different types of malware on it, malicious software on it. And you may get rid of one by paying it, but then the other one pops up. So it's really important to, to uh, understand and assess the situation if you can before you consider start paying. Now, when I mentioned layers of protection before, it also applies here. Another layer of security is uh, backups. And not only for uh, companies, but for people at home. Make sure that you back up your information and you have it in an air-gapped or in a completely separated system from your main system so you can always come back to it and, and utilize it. Right, that makes a lot of sense. Another thing uh, that uh, came up in your uh, job title uh, and description uh, of what you do it was, of course, the dark web. I just wondered if you could explain what that actually is for the listeners, the dark web. Sure. <laughs> The dark web is a set of networks that are, are not connected, that are, you need special software in order to connect to them. A bit of history, usually when we say the dark web, we talk about Tor, the onion route. 
Uh, but there are other dark webs like uh, I2P, the Internet Invisible Protocol, and, and several others. But most people talk about Tor. Now, what Tor is, is actually um, a network that was created there by US uh, military, actually, Navy intelligence. And it is used to anonymize yourself uh, when going online. So if I wanted to hit a certain website and I don't want them to know anything about me, I go through the Tor network using special software. I connect to the Tor network and it anonymizes me. So if I hit that server, the server will see somebody from Tor, but it won't see Itai, as opposed to me using my browser. And then, as you know, there's cookies. There are all kinds of ways for, uh, a service, for, for services to identify me. Then they know it's me. So that was how Tor started, to anonymize your online connection. But what happened is some criminals found out, hey, you can also create services on the Tor network itself without going out back to the uh, internet, uh, to the clear net, as we call it. And so they created th these different hidden services that you can only access if you use the Tor network and they are internal to that network. And that that's actually when they started selling uh, all kinds of, of drugs and all kinds uh, of cyber, uh, of malware and, and phishing kits and, and basically whatever you can think of on these different networks. And that started, you know, uh, getting traction. But what really made that boom was Bitcoins. Uh, because in 2008-9, when Bitcoin started becoming big, criminals also realized, hey, now I don't have to use these prepaid cards or all kinds of transactions. I can use this cryptocurrency, which anonymizes my transaction. And you have this kind of celestial alignment of being anonymized and having the transaction anonymized. That's what caused the underground boom. So the dark web, when we look at the web, we think about it in three layers, clear, deep, and dark. Clear is anything you can reach on any search engine, anything that is indexed. You type, you know, a bank name, you'll see it on the clear web. Deep web is anything that's on the web, but it's behind some form of wall, like a username and password. So for example, you can see uh, bank A website, but you can't see my account in there. It, mm -hmm. it's, not, it's not indexed because it's behind a username and password, for example. And the dark web is what I've discovered, this, what I've described before, is actually uh, uh, pieces of the web where you have to have special software to even connect to those networks. Well, I'm just wondering why people actually bother, because I'll be honest with you, someone reading my bank account is going to be severely disappointed uh, by what they find there. Uh, I suspect the same is true for an awful lot of people. And uh, the stuff that you're describing, the special software, et cetera, must require an awful lot of expertise. Why do the criminals actually bother? Is it uh, Are we sort of stepping stones into our employers or uh, are they hoping we'll strike it rich? What is the actual point of all this? The, 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 are, you, are you referring specifically to the use of the dark web or? or uh, well, hackers in general. I mean, I'm just trying to wonder what, how and why they get their payback. If, uh, you know, if they were to sort of hack into all my stuff uh, or a great many other individuals, they would get to a very small reward at the end of it. So first of all, a lot of small result, re, uh, rewards end up being something big. Number yep. one. Number two, uh, we have to keep in mind that the criminal underground is separated into different, now you have different different organizations and different people who are experts in different areas. So uh, some of them will just infect you. They won't actually perform the fraud. They leave it to other people. Another thing to remember is that your computer, that uh, financial data is not the only thing that they're after. They're after airline uh, reward points. They're after healthcare data. They're after uh, IRS information. Um, so there, there's different elements that they can utilize to, to perform these, these types of uh, fraudulent activities. 
And on top of that, they may use your computer, they may attack your computer just to use you as a proxy for something else. Uh, if you're familiar with the term uh, a botnet, that's a set of computers that have been infected, they may actually use your computer to target another company or another system. Right, so that when uh, they trace the threat back, uh, or that you know the victim, ultimate victim traces the threat back, they find me rather than the actual perpetrator. Correct, and and they're also using the power the, the power of the masses. So, for example, if I wanted to take down a certain server, uh, use what's called a DDoS, a distributed denial of service attacks. That's when uh, a server is overwhelmed with requests from a lot of different computers. I can just infect, for example, half a million, a million computers, not that it's that easy, but it's doable, and then use that in order to run these attacks against a server. Now, I want to connect this to what we've talked about before. Because we have more devices now, more smart devices, more smart devices that are connected to the internet, criminals are already utilizing these devices to run their attacks. One of the most famous examples is the Mirai botnet, where attackers were actually utilizing the fact that People didn't change the default passwords on, on home webcams. Mm. They targeted these webcams with, with malware, and then they used these webcams to run a DDoS attack. They, they, had, uh, they had over a million uh, devices they were using to run these DDoS attacks against other servers. So what can we actually do about this in practical terms? I'm assuming that uh, changing all of your default password, whether it's on uh, a toy you've just given to your child or a um, uh, your, your brand new computer, phone, tablet, whatever else you happen to have around the place, uh, it would be a good start. Is that a reasonable start? That's a reasonable start. We definitely need to do that. Keep in mind that any default password on your device is something that is about a two-minute two Google search away from anybody else. You can find the manual online and figure it out. So yes, definitely change the default passwords. Utilize different security measures when possible. A very uh, strong security component that people fail to utilize enough is two-factor authentication. It's you know getting that SMS once you log in from a new device. That will stop a lot of these types of attacks. I'm not saying it's perfect. You know, very sophisticated attackers can also overcome these one-time passwords. But you know what? You don't want to be the lower hanging fruit. You don't want to be the ones uh, that are the immediate targets for the attackers. So even most services that I'm familiar with today would offer two-factor authentication. Please do utilize it. And keep in mind, you are, in most cases, keeping all of your eggs in one basket. If somebody gets access, for example, to your Gmail account, I'm pretty sure he can reset the passwords on almost all, all the services that you have. Because we all put our services, you know, the, the G, our Gmail account or, or whatever service you're using um, as, as the email for resetting passwords. So please do make sure that if you, if you or, or somebody unknown is logging from a new computer, they have to further authenticate or two-factor authentication that goes to your mobile device or whatever solution you have. That makes a lot of sense. And as businesses, what can people do there? Is it a matter of keeping their uh, security suite up to date? Is it uh, uh, hiring external uh, consultancies? Uh, what, uh, you know, if you're sort of, say, on the small to medium side, uh, rather than someone with a dedicated IT team, what can you, what steps can you take then? Right, so there there's the basic security things that need to be done. You have to educate your, your users that they are the target and let them know of things that may be out there and targeting them. You do have, hey, Update your, your your systems, fully patch your systems. You know, criminals usually utilize um, old and vulnerable systems to gain immediate access. And of course, have security in layers. Once you have the basics down, it is advisable to hire somebody to, to you know, hey, let's, let's see if I can hack you. 
hire a red team, a penetration a penetration team to show you how a criminal would go and, and uh, attack you. And if you're going to level up in maturity, you know, have threat intelligence. Understand if somebody is targeting you or your sector and, you know, be prepared for the types of attacks uh, that may be coming. Okay, and finally, if people are interested in, or listening uh, in uh, finding out about how to get uh, involved in the threat intelligence uh, community and talk to you about your services, where can they find out more about you and your organization? So we can we offer a lot of information on our website, uh, insights.com. Uh, they can go there, they can read some of the blogs that we're putting out on this type of information, read a little bit more about different nation state actors and, and get in touch with us in case they need us. Okay, Itam Iowa, uh, Chief uh, Security Officer of Insights. Thank you very much indeed for joining me. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. And many thanks to you too for listening. That was the Near Futurist podcast with me, Guy Clapperton. Don't forget to have a look at the website at nearfuturist.co.uk. I'll be back in two weeks' time as always. Goodbye.